Well, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. So Jesus, in the very beginning of the Gospels, went looking for some guys. He found them down at the beach. Do you remember what he said to them? Two words, Simon, Andrew, James, John. What did he say to them? Follow me. Follow me. Now, what was he after? Follow me and I'll, I'll show you how to find a path through the desert where you won't die. And there's water along the way. He's saying, follow me and I'll take you to a great party. Follow me for what purpose? Why? What are we going to do? Do you remember what he said? How he answered that question? Follow me and I will make you I teach you how to fish for people. Now, Brandon spends a lot of time down in Susquehanna fishing for stuff that you eat. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? If that's, that's for these guys, that was their livelihood. They, they make money by catching fish and selling them. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to give you a far better job. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. We start a new series today on evangelism. And some of you may be thinking right now, oh, man, if I'd have just known that, I wouldn't have shown up today. Because I think many of us struggle with this area. We struggle with guilt and all kinds of other things. And sometimes, you've probably heard people say this, sometimes... Folks think if we could just get a handle on what hell is like, then we'd really be serious about evangelism. But it's one of the reasons that these folks who claim to have seen hell or gone to hell, their books are interesting. Maybe that'll really get a hold of me. I don't think that's sustainable, especially if you don't know the people that are going there. The general told these two men, if you take the message and you get there in time, you will save 1,600 lives. And if you fail, it will be a massacre. Now, the year was 1917, and the world was consumed with war, a particularly horrific kind of war. All sorts of new ways of killing people had been invented and were being implemented in this war. Poison gas, tanks, aerial combat for the first time. And the forces were spread out face to face with with each other, especially across France. It was a horrific kind of warfare that was uh, fought from and, and uh, men died in these massive trenches about eight foot high that had been dug down into the ground. And there were, there were like trails in these trenches. You could go from one end to the other and they would, be, they would be miles long. And the men would put their heads up over the trench edges and try to pick off somebody on the other side that had their heads sticking up. There was maybe one, two or three football field lengths between the two lines. 
And each of them had strung barbed wire in front of their trenches so that no one could sneak up on them in the middle of the night and they not hear. There was a particular elbow in the line. The, the German line was called the Hindenburg line, stretched across France. And there was, a, there was an elbow there. <clears throat> and the British at one point realized that the Germans had withdrawn, or at least appeared to have withdrawn from this particular part in the line. And they finally came to the conclusion, it may be that the Germans are retreating. And those, so they sent two battalions, 1,600 men, to pursue the fleeing, what they thought were the fleeing Germans. Before the attack occurred, though, new intelligence came to the planners behind the lines, and they realized that these men were walking into a trap. And so they chose two lance corporals to take a message to them. They had telegraph, they had telephone, but terribly unreliable, World War I, these forms of communication were so unreliable in part because of the constant artillery uh, barrages. We need to send men. And if you fail, it will be a massacre. Now Lance Corporal Schofield thought it was absolute madness. How in the world would they ever know the, the place where they were going uh, which towns the enemy still held, which farms had enemy soldiers in, where they might run into scouts, where there might be machine gun nests. Madness. But Lance Corporal Blake was absolutely determined, and he was going to go alone, even if Lance Corporal Schofield didn't. Because, you see, one of the men in the 1600 of the two battalions, a lieutenant, was his brother. Love will make you risk everything. Love will make you do things you didn't think were possible. Even, even willing to give your life, which is exactly what Lance Corporal Blake did in his mission. Acts chapter 1. Beginning of verse 6. Now let me just, before I read that, um, and I'll get more into this a little bit later. One of the things that has transformed or been transformational in the church in the last 1600 years is that we have taken a decidedly different approach to reaching the world for Jesus Christ than they did the first several hundred years. Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 and 12 say that God has given the church some key people. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, those are usually understood to be one person. And they have a specific job and their job is to equip the church Equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And long about 400s, 300s and 400s AD, the church lost sight of this. And instead of those people equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, increasingly did the work of ministry themselves. So fair warning this morning. 
I believe the Bible more than I believe church history. And I believe that the job of reaching the world and our neighborhoods and our communities is not just mine, not just Pastor Kyle, Pastor Brandon, Pastor Charlie, but we are one of many for whom the calling has come down, do the work of ministry. All right, now we get to verse six. Acts one, verse six. This is, Jesus has risen from the dead. He spent numerous weeks with his uh, disciples. He's about to go back to heaven. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. Remember that the next time somebody tells you Jesus is coming back on such and such a date. Not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And today, we're going to talk about Jerusalem. Father, would you help us? Would you stir us? Would you give us insight? Would you empower us? Would you move us to be the people to carry out the mission you've called us to carry out? Would you dampen our excuses? Would you give us hope? Remind us of the power this morning that you have entrusted to us for this very thing. Father, we pray against the enemy of our souls who hates the very idea of your people loving others enough to tell them about Jesus. Mute him, silence him, and set the spirit free this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three questions I want us to wrestle with this morning. First of all, do we know what's on God's heart? Second, do we know what he wants? And third, do we have what it takes? And do we know what's on God's heart? As we said earlier, love takes risks. I met a man last month who grew up in an extremely dysfunctional, violent home. His dad was an alcoholic. And he told me about the night that his dad came home drunk. Uh, there were nine kids in the family. And he, dad went to the kitchen drawer and pulled out a large knife and said, I'm going to kill you. And Ed said when that happened, the kids all scattered. He was the last one in the kitchen with his dad. He's 12 years old. His dad would, there was a kitchen table between the two of them. His dad would go this way. Ed would go this way. Dad would come this way. Dad, Ed would go this way. And finally, he was at opposite corners of the table enough that he fled out the door, ran up the stairs to his bedroom, slammed the door shut, locked it, and barricaded the door. And then he opened the window and sat on the windowsill. His dad came up the steps, broke the door down, 
moved the furniture, came at him still with a knife in his hand, and Ed jumped. Ed's in his 70s now. He still walks with a limp because of an injury hitting the ground. He missed the picket fence below by about a foot. Now, you, you, you would think that that kind of experience would make a man hate his father. Instead, he wanted ever so much, once he became a Christian, to see his dad become a Christian. And about a year before his father passed away, he had the privilege of leading him to faith in Christ and baptizing him. He led most of his siblings to Christ as well and his mom and many others in his family. Now, you might say, well, okay, his dysfunctional, sick home, but most people who grow up in an environment like that still desperately want a connection with their mom and dad. And so he loved his family. We understand that. It's interesting here what the disciples were interested in when they talked with Jesus in verse 6. They realized that Jesus is going back to heaven. And in their minds, what's of most importance is the people they love and know and are related to. Is this when you're going to give Israel back the keys? Is this when you're going to give us our rightful place again in the League of Nations? My people, our nation, our kingdom. And Jesus says, well, first of all, that's not your concern. But I think there was something else that Jesus desperately wanted them to think about. And that was all the people that they didn't know and care about. Some of you have memorized John 3.16. How does it go? For God so loved the Rohr family that he gave his one and only son that anybody in the Rohr family who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or the Hoover family, or the Workholder family, or the Esch family. It's not what it says, is it? Say it with me. For God so loved the, say it again. For God so loved the world. Do we know what's on God's heart? It's the world. Loves the church, but loves the world too. And because of that, Jesus says, don't you worry about Israel's kingdom. I want you to worry about the world. And Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. Here at home in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, so here in your neighborhood in New Holland or Intercourse or Gap or Paradise or Lancaster or Coatesville, in Pennsylvania, the United States, and the world. God loves the world. I mean, 
When's the last time that dawned on you that the person that you don't know speaks a language you don't know, who lives at an address that's not yours, God loves them and wants to love them through you and me. Do we know what's on his heart? Now, do we know what it is that he wants? Okay, we've just heard about we're supposed to be witnesses. What exactly does it mean to be a witness for Jesus? What exactly does it mean to evangelize? If this is a series on evangelism, what's that mean? <clears throat> the word evangelize comes from a Greek word in the New Testament that looks and sounds very much like it, euangelizo. Which means literally to herald, to announce, to proclaim specifically the gospel. In fact, even people who aren't Christians, it speaks about them evangelizing. In Acts 16, 17, if you remember, there was a slave girl who was demonized, who was following Paul and his other missionaries all over the place. And it says that she was evangelizing. She was declaring, these are the servants of the Most High God who are trying to tell you how to be saved. What is evangelism and what isn't it? This is really important for us to clarify. In 2020, in the United States of America... Because in some cases, we may have lost our way. I, I, I read an article about four months ago that was entitled, Don't Just Share the Gospel. And I have been haunted by it ever since. And, and I'm trying to change my language, uh, but it's really hard. I discovered... Yesterday, when I was, had finalized my sermon, I discovered I actually had the phrase in my sermon. I'm trying to get rid of this, and I'll explain why. Um, when you share something, isn't it usually something that you have that somebody else wants? So if your parents, uh, if you have some young children and you're, you're trying to get the older one to share a toy with the younger one, it's usually because the younger one wants it and they want it at the same time, right? So we're trying to teach our kids to, to share. We're trying to get them to give something they have that they want to somebody else who also wants the same thing. Now, has anybody in here ever told somebody about Jesus that really didn't want, turned out they didn't want Jesus. Put your hand up. If you've ever had that experience, sure, most of us have. See the problem? If we stick with the mindset of sharing the gospel, we lose the understanding that the, the fact of the matter is we might be butting heads with someone and offering them something they really don't want. So does that let us off the hook? Does that change the calling? So what I'm about to read, this article that I was telling you about, written by Andy, uh, Elliot Clark, 
and it was taken from a book he wrote last year called Evangelism as Exiles, Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land. And this book really came about from a class that he was sitting in on in Central Asia, I don't know what country, and so presumably it was a closed country, but a veteran missionary was teaching this class and he was complaining about the language that had was now becoming part of the language, the vocabulary of Christians in this Central Asian country that had been imported from the States and the West. And they were talking now about sharing the gospel. And Elliot thought, this is kind of a over-the-top, strange reaction. But he came to be convinced that there's a problem in the language. In other words, that the language undermines what we're to do. He says this, evangelism is an act whereby one cuts straight. And I think what he means by that is one has to cut to the chase. You can't hem and haw and do evangelism. After inviting a friend to church, you don't get to check the box for doing evangelism. Now, they might hear the gospel there, but you haven't done evangelism. You've invited them to church. Being faithfully present in your neighborhood doesn't equal biblical evangelism. Polite spiritual conversations at work or around the dinner table also don't mean you've evangelized anyone. You must announce the good news. Now, it may be that you are um, you're developing a relationship with this person and that you are working up to it, But the point is, evangelism is when you get to the proclamation and not before. And the reason that we have to wrestle with this, and I say we because I'm in the same boat, how very timid we can be and always being aim, 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 and not firing. Right? Ready, aim, aim, aim. And brothers and sisters, nobody ever came to Jesus when they were aimed at. They need to hear that there is a God in heaven who so loved them that he gave them his son to save them. They need to hear it. What's Paul say in Romans 14? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, if this job to proclaim is passed along from God, who's it passed along to? Now back to my conversation earlier. Who should be proclaiming this good news, this this gospel? Should it be preachers or plumbers? Should it be ministers or merchants? Should it be scholars or salesmen? Should it be missionaries or mechanics? In other words, should it be the church pastors or should it be the church people? These questions have one answer. Yes. Yes. 
and you can fill in your particular occupation or what you spend the bulk of your week doing, you can fill in that line, yes for you as well. Who? All of us. The early church steamrolled the Roman Empire to such a degree that in the first 230 years, about 250 AD, by the time 250 AD had rolled around, there were over a million followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire. And they started with nothing. A million. And something began to change in the next 100 and 150 years. And that is that the church went back to a much more Jewish model of church, of church leadership than the one described and prescribed in the New Testament. Now we go back to high priests and priests and Levites. Not the same labels, but similar model. And increasingly, the work of the ministry shifted from the people who were comprised the body of Christ to the leaders. It used to be the leaders train and equip the people to do the ministry, and increasingly that's being taken away by the leaders, and now the leaders are saying, no, I'll do, we'll do the work of ministry. And in the medieval years, it became worse and worse as only those who were trained in the original languages could do ministry. And if you don't know the original languages in the medieval period, most people couldn't read their own language, let alone know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And the church and the advance of the gospel has suffered desperately because we've messed that up. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't have the gift of evangelism. If, if you have the gift of evangelism here this morning, would you raise your hand, please? And nobody wants to do that. But the bottom line is that most of us don't have that gift. Did Jesus say to Peter, James, and John, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and the rest of them, if you have the gift of evangelism, you will be my witnesses? Is that what he said? No. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. Those one plus million believers were made in those first 250 years by fishermen and tax collectors and women and tent makers and doctors. When the leaders of the Jewish ministerium were examining Peter and John in Acts 4, it says that they realized that these men were uneducated. They didn't know Greek and Hebrew. Well, they might have known Greek. And some of them might have known some Hebrew. But they hadn't been educated. They hadn't taken any theolo uh, theological courses. They hadn't been to seminary. They hadn't written or read theological books. But it says they took note of the fact that they had been with whom? Disciples. Who had they been with? 
Jesus. Makes all the difference in the world. They'd been with Jesus. They were uneducated nobodies. And they turned, when Jesus turned them loose on the world, they made disciples. Who turned around and made disciples. Who turned around and made disciples. And suddenly there's a million. And then another million. And then another million. And I think it's safe to say that these people understood, based on just what we see in the New Testament, these people understood our job is not just to have them over for dinner. It's not just to invite them to church. It's not just to be around them and have them think well of me as a Christian. My job is to announce to herald, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that he came to this world, lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like me. Lastly, do we have what it takes? Do we have what it takes? I don't know about you, but I have ignored opportunities. I have told people about Jesus, but I would say, There are many, many more times and many more than I can count that I have punted. And I've said things like, ah, it's not the right time. By the way, when is the right time? I've thought she may tune me out or worse, just walk away or cut me off or shut me out or So, I may not have the answers to her questions. By the way, I have two theological degrees, and I think that as well. So, don't let that deter you. I may say the wrong thing. I probably will sometimes. You say the wrong things to your wife. Right? Husbands, have you ever said the wrong thing to your wife? Have you been informed about that? You still married her, right? Still married to her? I may embarrass Jesus. You know what's embarrassing to Jesus? When I fail to take the opportunity to speak about him. They may think I'm some sort of primitive, I'm behind the times, I'm unsophisticated. (laughs) Maybe you don't think these things, but I I do. That's the kind of stuff that goes through my mind. And and I've, I've figured this out. I'm still not beyond this, but I figured this out. I call these bricks of uncertainty. And if you know anything about construction, you know you don't just lay bricks on the dirt. There's a foundation that they have to go on. Bricks of uncertainty laid on a foundation of fear. And the bottom line is I am more concerned about me than I am of them. I am more concerned about how I will look than about seeing them be delivered. What we desperately need to, I think, at least this is one thing, to help offset that 
is calculating the strength we have, calculating strength. You remember when Jesus talked about counting the cost? Uh, Luke 14, 31. He says when a, a king goes to war, he counts the number of soldiers that he has, and then he sits down and confers with his generals and his advisors to determine whether or not he can win. He's going to try to figure out whether or not he has enough men to beat his enemy. <clears throat> and we should do that as well. In this calling on our lives, we should calculate the strength. Now let's go back again to verse 8. Remember what Jesus said? Before he said, and you will be my witnesses, he said, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses. In fact, you go back to Luke chapter 24. Jesus said, um, he told them they're going to be his ambassadors. They're going to take the gospel everywhere. He says, but wait in the city until you receive the Holy Spirit. Because you're going to need him. Because you can't do this on your own. You don't have what it takes on your own. You're, you're not going to be brave enough to face up to persecution for the early church. You're going to have all these inhibitions. You're going to have all these anxieties, all these worries that are going to keep you holding back. But if you wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, whole different ballgame. Whole different ballgame. And I wonder how many times we have thought instead of, we're with an unbeliever, and instead of thinking, I'm going to embarrass Jesus, I'm not going to know the answers, I don't know how to transition this conversation, instead of speaking that, we take just a brief moment and say, God, fill me with the Spirit. Speak through me with the Spirit. In other words, how many times we're shifting our focus to God who can or being stuck on me who can't. There are, by the census count, about 90 million adults in the United States who want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, I don't believe for a minute that the remaining 167 million who profess to be Christians actually are. But let's just stick with the 90 million number. That doesn't include 17-year-olds. That doesn't include 14-year-olds or 8-year-olds. That's just over 18. 90 million. And sometimes we have discussions around the history and the nature of our country today, and we like to talk about the United States being a Christian nation. We are not. By any definition, we are not. And I worry sometimes that that thought that we are is, may contribute to this problem of we're not, we're not on for evangelism. We don't have this sense that anybody we meet might need Jesus. And that's true here in the so-called Bible Belt as well. 90 million. And you work with some of them. 
You shop at the same place some of those folks shop. You get your car repaired by some of those folks. You get your hairstyle by some of those folks. You go to school with some of those people. You play on sports teams with some of those people. Does it occur to you when you're with them that they need Jesus? In other words, that more than anything else, any other topic of conversation with them, that they need Jesus. You can talk about the Phillies and the Eagles. Don't know why you would, but... And a thousand other things. But the more than anything else, they need Jesus. So I have a couple questions for us in closing this morning. Are you convinced that God loves people? Are you convinced that God loves people? And then connected with that, have you ever asked God to give you his heart for people? Second question, are you convinced that God wants you, you, brother or sister, you, to proclaim the gospel to people? Third question, now we're moving to the planning stage. Will you ask God to help you see people first? Not as co-workers and classmates and delivery men and neighbors and teammates, telemarketers, but see them first as folks who might need Jesus. And then last question. Will you pray right now as we close for the Holy Spirit's power, for his insight for his help and his wisdom to proclaim the gospel to somebody this week. Not as something to report back to someone else, just between you and the Lord. God, I, I really, I want to have your heart for people. I, I want to do the proclaiming that you ask me to do, not just kind of pussyfoot around and I get to it, I'm building a relationship, to actually talk to somebody about Jesus this week. Lord, would you, would you give me that opportunity? And we're going to pray right now, and I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer along those lines. And I'll wait just a while, and then I'm going to commission all of us and the power of the Holy Spirit to take a step like that this week. Let's pray. Father, you know how weak we are. You know how good our intentions are, and yet we struggle. But maybe we've forgotten that when we are weak, you are strong. 
Maybe we have forgotten that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We believe the Holy Spirit is God. We believe that he lives in us. We may forget that he's available to us. And so this morning, Father, I pray in your mercy and out of your great love for the world, would you use every last one of us who are here and who's watching live stream or the Vimeo later or who's in the mass service, every one of us who know and love Jesus, would you use every one of us this week in some way to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ came to save them. Not so we get a pat on the back, not so we feel good about ourselves, but so people can be saved. Amen.